0: Here at Calvary Chapel Northeast, it's our goal to make disciples of Christ by exalting our God, equipping believers, and engaging in our community. Thanks for tuning in to this week's CCNE podcast. Today, Pastor Brennan will be speaking out of the book of Acts. All right, so we will be returning to our study in Acts chapter 8 today. As you recall from last week, I was very excited, I didn't want to stop. I didn't want to stop, I wanted to continue because where we go in this chapter today is just such an exciting thing, certainly for me as a pastor, but it has been my prayer throughout the week that it would be an exciting thing for each and every one of you, and that quite frankly, if there's some of you here today that may be wrestling with the call of God on your lives, that perhaps today will serve as an encouragement, as confirmation, perhaps even as an exhortation. But what we see today is an additional aspect of how the gospel is going forth from Jerusalem into Samaria and then into the uttermost parts of the earth. And so we'll be picking back up in Acts chapter 8, verse 14 this morning. When we began chapter 8 last week, we learned more of the deacon Philip. Philip who was raised up and sent to bring the gospel to Samaria an unlikely evangelist from some perspectives no doubt and certainly certainly an unlikely audience that he took the gospel to in samaria philip who was raised up to wait on tables if you recall to fulfill a certain administrative process in order to support the disciples and serve amongst the the Jews who had converted to christianity was now responding to the call of God in his life, likely in part because others would not to bring the gospel beyond Jerusalem into the land of Samaria. Samaria, a half-Jew, half-Gentile nation that was the object of Jerusalem's scorn and considered almost less than human in some respects for such a long period of time, that the gospel would go to them of all people? Yet we know that this is the gospel. This is the gospel. It is the likeliest of all places for the gospel message to go, not only because it's a message of grace and of mercy and of healing, but also as the message now goes beyond the Jews and makes its way to the Gentiles. What a better transition than that group of people that were considered both. That it would serve as a transition for the disciples, for them to embrace what the gospel message could accomplish, what forgiveness in Jesus Christ could mean. It demands the question of each of us, as I posed last week, of who is your neighbor? Who is your neighbor? As we consider the feelings that the Jews and the apostles had towards the Samaritans, it should cause us all to ask, who is our neighbor? And what are we willing to do for them? Are we willing to give them the gospel? Additionally, as the account relates to Philip, already I've mentioned that here this relatively unassuming individual will be responsible for first carrying the gospel beyond the borders of Jerusalem, giving hope to us all. To us all, those who feel perhaps Less than qualified to do what it is that God may be calling you to do. It reinforces the fact that God equips the called. He doesn't call the equipped. God looks for a willing heart, one that is ready to be obedient to the call. And this will be the crux of our scripture today obedience to the call. As we see Philip continue to operate in faithful obedience to the call of God. In his life, we'll pick back up here in verse 14, as I mentioned, where the apostles are receiving a report of the work of God and what he is doing in Samaria. And as has been the natural progression with revival or with spiritual awakening, comes a mighty move of the Spirit amongst the people as well. And so, if you would just agree with me in prayer as we go to the Word of God here this morning, Heavenly Father. We pause here this morning and we give you thanks for the opportunity that we have to come together to study your word, to bring you praise, to worship you. And I pray, Lord, through this morning and and through the word that we would grow in our excitement for what we see that you are able to do through ordinary men, ordinary men and women who turn the world upside down. I pray that it gives us hope here today for what you can do in us and through us. And, of course, as we will see once again a mighty move of your Spirit, how you lead and guide individually and personally, Lord, I pray that we would seek the same here this morning, that you would speak to us, that you would lead us, that you would guide us. Call us, Lord, into your service here today and equip and anoint us with the power of your Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In verse 14, we read, Now when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, who, when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet he had fallen upon none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. So word here returns to the apostles who were in Jerusalem that the gospel has gone to Samaria. And as I mentioned last week, I'm sure that there was both wrestling and rejoicing with this reality. I think it is wonderful that John was sent with Peter to confirm this and to lay hands on the people. These people whom John had suggested be consumed with fire as he had walked with James and with Jesus. What do you suppose was going through John's mind at this particular moment? No doubt, and I hope, Lord, thank you for not answering that foolish prayer. That sometimes God does give us the opportunity to see our own error in such a way. And no doubt John was reflecting on what he had once suggested for these people who were now his spiritual brothers and sisters. And it should be an encouragement to us all once again that we can see, we can have opinions of, we can have judgmental feelings towards, we can be ruthless, quite frankly, with people who are truly our neighbors. And oftentimes in that we forget to see them as who they really are men and women that Jesus desires to save, whom he died for, that they would just. Come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and be transformed. That should be our heart for all people. And so the apostles are sent to verify, essentially, at this time and to lay hands on the Samaritans, for they had not yet, as we read, received the Holy Spirit. And so they go to confirm what it is that's going on there. And this was commonplace at the time that as there was revival, as there was awakening, as there were churches planted, the apostles would go there. They would go to establish. A foundation for teaching, they would go to confirm that, that what they had heard happening was in fact actually happening, that they had been saved. And here they had been saved, they confirmed this, and they had received the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that comes with salvation, and they had been baptized in the name of the Holy Spirit, but they had not yet received the power or the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, it had not yet fallen upon them as it had the apostles and others on the day of Pentecost. And that's an important distinction there. Many are troubled by this. Many see this as an odd thing that it would say that they were saved, but they did not yet have the Holy Spirit. It hadn't yet come upon them. And that for us is the distinction of what we see with the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit can indwell the believer and does that salvation, but there is a second empowering that comes when the Holy Spirit is poured out on God's people, and it empowers and equips us to serve him. And remember that what we are reading in Acts is a history of the early church, and it's in a time of transition. Through Acts chapter 10, we begin to see the door of the gospel being opened from Jerusalem again into Samaria, where we're at now, and then to the Gentiles. We'll see in the latter part of the message here today that the gospel is given to an Ethiopian man, and he goes and he takes it with joy, rejoicing for the truth that he's heard. Remember that in Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 20, Peter is declared to possess the keys to the kingdom. And I believe that God is very intentional in requiring the apostles at this time, their involvement in this stage of the church, to show them that he is opening the door. For the gospel to go forth, for them to be involved, and for reconciliation to be more evident between them. Imagine had they only simply heard about what was going on in Samaria, the speculation that they might have had, the ill feelings they may still have possessed towards that region and those believers but for them to go, for them to witness it, for them to see, for them to be required to lay hands on these people, that in and of itself, the touch, the laying on of hands, was a way in which they were united, was a way in which that relationship that had division for so long was restored. This reconciliation now was more evident between them and the Samaritans before it goes forth to the Gentiles. Furthermore, this process of laying on of hands, we don't consistently see this, and we don't see it ongoing in every situation as we'll continue through Acts. And so I don't want you to think either that it is necessarily a required step for receiving the baptism or the empowering of the Holy Spirit. We will see where others will receive the Spirit independent of the apostles. So this does not endorse some type of apostolic authority in the church today, but rather, again, this was during a time of transition, and this is how God was leading. That they received the power of the Holy Spirit, that is the most important thing that we see here. And as I've stated before, if you are a believer, you can be living absent of the empowering of the Holy Spirit. There are those today who believe in Jesus Christ, who have received and have the indwelling of the Spirit. They are saved individuals, but they lack the power that God desires to give to them through the outpouring of the Spirit. There is pieces of, of powered equipment that aren't plugged in, operating as less than what they are intended to be. We need the power of the spirit upon our lives, especially as we consider then what starts to happen here, and as Philip goes forth and how he's led of the spirit. These are things that we can have in our own lives if we receive the power of the spirit in verse eighteen and when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands, remember, Simon was an individual. He was a magician, a sorcerer who had worked in the area. He had many followers. They believed him, in some cases, to be the power of God. And he had been saved. And now when Simon sees this, he sees that through the laying on of the apostles' hands, the Holy Spirit was given. He offered them money, saying in verse 19, Give me this power also, that anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. And so this here reinforces that the Holy Spirit coming upon the believers was more than the indwelling of the Spirit, that it was an empowering, and it brought with it some sort of visible manifestation, like the other times when the Holy Spirit had come upon them, gifts of tongue, prophecies, etc., where those were exercised on the day of Pentecost and elsewhere, this is likely what happened again. We don't know exactly what happened here with the laying on of hands, but there was something that Simon saw. There was something that he experienced, and it made him want this power. But no different then versus now. Such power is not something that you buy, but something that you receive in faith. For a magician, though, at the time, a sorcerer, such gifts would have been very appealing. And this begins to show where Simon's heart is relative to his faith. There is something in the church that's been there for some time called simony. You may have heard of this before. When positions of power are purchased, not earned or appointed, and it comes from this man, this man Simon, where individuals would come and they would offer a certain sum of money to have a position within the church. We don't endorse that process here, just so you know, to put your mind at ease. It is this account that fuels the debate as well as to whether or not Simon was saved. Is he truly a believer because of, because of his heart in this matter, because he's looking at the gifts of the Spirit in this way? And on one hand, this could be the innocence of a baby Christian. It truly could be. It could be a lack of understanding at his part, and it was common also at this time for sorcerers or magicians to buy tricks they would work amongst one another and if one was able to do something the other would say well can i pay for that can i can you tell me exactly how it is that you go about doing that and they would share that information and they would be able to dupe individuals into believing the power that they had in some cases okay, so this was something for him to ask for him to say how much i want to be able to do that would be something that he may have actually been accustomed to doing it would have seemed maybe very normal for him and in the same time somewhat Innocent. And he also, however, he could have been an individual who had faith or belief that was so rooted in signs and wonders, especially with his waning fame and popularity as individuals who had formerly followed him began to follow Jesus Christ and ascribe to the teaching of the apostles, that it could be that he did want it for his own selfish gain, that it was purely about power. We don't know Simon's heart. Just as we don't know the heart of man today, it can be easy for us to make a judgment on an individual. Are they saved? Are they not saved? Now, I'm not suggesting that we don't look for fruit in someone's life. Trust me, as a pastor, you're going to look for fruit. You're going to look for that. You're going to expect to see fruit in an individual's life who says that they know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. But even absent of that, it is not for me to simply say with judgment or with confidence that that person's not saved. Or furthermore, for me to say this is their heart or that is their heart, such that I would not be inclined to show them the grace and the mercy that I know through Jesus Christ. That I would not be inclined to continue to share with them the gospel and what Jesus Christ has done in my own life. And so Peter here, he does address what is going on. And he does it in such a way that it has to pierce to the heart of Simon. And Peter says to him in verse 20, Your money perish with you. Because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. You have neither part nor portion in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of this your wickedness, and pray, God, if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. And so Peter here recognizes that something is not right with Simon. And he tells him, you need to repent. You need to get your heart right with the Lord. Because what you're demonstrating here suggests that you don't understand. And this is a pretty healthy rebuke, by the way. Some translators say that Peter was essentially saying to hell with you and your money. Truly, this is a good translation for what Peter said to Simon. People don't like to be spoken to like that these days. We don't like to be rebuked like that, do we? If somebody had said something like that to you, you might be pretty offended. This would be too offensive, perhaps, in our culture today. But Peter cut to the matter of the heart. And you don't think Peter was familiar with that? He is one who can say this to Simon as one who has received it at one point as well. In the passage that I referenced earlier in Matthew 16, Peter is first commended for his belief in who Jesus is. Jesus says, who do men say that I am? And Peter says, rightly, you are are the Son of God. And he's commended for that. He's recognized for that. But later on, as as Peter attempts to rebuke Jesus for what Jesus had said about his own death, what does Jesus say to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. If I was Peter, I had to be thinking, oh, man, Jesus, that's harsh, right? Like you would be so wounded by that. But he cut to the heart. Jesus said, no you be careful what it is that you're saying. He said, you are an offense to me. Peter was no stranger to such a harsh rebuke. But the rebuke in and of itself didn't mean, by the way, that Peter was off the rails or didn't believe. It was a rebuke, and in like manner, the same could be said of Simon. Peter discerns here the heart of Simon. And whether Simon was saved or not, he was addressing what was in his heart. Once again, we are called to serve, to share, to disciple, not to judge. Yes, again, we look for the fruit or the absence thereof in an individual's life. And then we allow God to do the work. And he recognizes here that bitterness and iniquity cannot remain in the heart of the believer. And that was likely the case for Simon. That gives us some insight into Simon maybe he was feeling a tad jealous, feeling a little frustrated that the power he once had was diminishing. The influence that he had over the people. Bitterness and iniquity cannot remain in the heart of the believer. And sometimes we have that same bitterness and iniquity towards our neighbors, do we not? And it prevents us from doing what it is that God has called us to do, to minister to them. And the thing about bitterness is that many of you have heard said time and time before. Is that bitterness is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. But it doesn't work. And you just get sicker and sicker and sicker. And meanwhile, you're wondering and you become even more infuriated by the fact that the person that you are bitter towards doesn't seem to care at all. And you, oh, I can't believe them. They just go on about their business as if nothing's ever even happened. Are they not considering what's going on here? Right? And even more and more and more, you want to withhold forgiveness. You want to withhold the message. And maybe God is telling you and he's calling you and you're saying, you need to go and you need to speak to them or you need to share this with them or you need to do whatever it is. But because of our bitterness and iniquity, we aren't hearing from the Lord. Or we're resisting what it is that he's saying to us. You'll be consumed in that situation. And so Simon answers, and I believe this is a genuine prayer. He says, pray to the Lord for me, verse 24, that none of the things which you have spoken may come upon me. And so when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many villages, of the Samaritans. And we don't hear of Simon again after that. But it seems that he was sincere in his prayer and request. Was he a true believer? Was he a counterfeit who simply wanted the power to do signs and wonders? We don't know. The Holy Spirit wanted us to know the account of Simon. What we do know is that there was power in the Word, that the Word changes lives. The gospel message was piercing hearts. The empowering of the Spirit could not be bought. It comes through faith faith, hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. And the apostles continued to testify and preach the Word, and they returned to Jerusalem, preaching in many Samaritan villages. Here, not long before, Samaria was still this half-Jew, half-Gentile land, untouched by the gospel, and now it was being transformed by the power of the Word of God. A revival was happening in Samaria. No doubt many were saved, but unlike before, We do not hear of the thousands that were converted. But like Simon, we get accounts of the few. And here following, we have another specific and individual encounter, as Philip is called from Samaria into the desert. And we read in verse 26, Now an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. So he rose and went. There is so much packed into these two verses. Here is Philip enjoying, no doubt, his first missionary journey into Samaria. He sees amazing things happen. I'm sure there was excitement in his heart to continue that work, to have that same experience again to see individuals come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. If you've not been party to that in some way, shape, or form, boy, I can't wait until you are. Because it's an amazing thing to experience and to see when individuals surrender their lives to Jesus Christ. And so Philip was no doubt excited about this. But he may have also been thinking about bigger and better things. Perhaps this early success would lead to a new position at a bigger church. Maybe now he could go out and speak at conferences, have his own website and blog. 500,000 followers on Twitter. Surely people would want to hear more from Philip now. I'm kidding, right? Sort of. That's our heart oftentimes, is it not? In our flesh, we expect periods of great success to lead to comfort and prosperity. That is not how God operates. And it certainly wasn't how Philip, being led of the Spirit, responded, praise God. Here an angel of the Lord says to Philip, Arise and go to the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. That's it. Wait a second. I just crushed it back there. Right? We saw a mighty move of the Spirit. I mean, I went to Samaria. A lot of people wouldn't go and do that. And now these great things are happening here, and you you want me to leave and go to the desert? And do what? And do what? Because the angel doesn't say, does it? What he essentially says is, I'll tell you when you get there. Right, I'll tell you when you get there. Wait a second, you mean right now that there's not going to be a real plan? You just want me to go? You want me to go without a plan? No outline of goals and objectives? No understanding of what the end result will be? What if it isn't good? What if the end goal doesn't seem good to me? What if I don't have the resources that I need? What if I don't have this? What if I don't have. And we could go on and on and on, couldn't we? how do I speak to that so well? Because I've been there, right? Because I've experienced myself, because I've said those same things when God has called me to something radical. I've said, God, I can't do that. That doesn't make any sense. God only gave Philip one step. He only gave him one step. He wouldn't hear from him again until he was obedient to that first step. And unlike me, at various points in my own walk, in my own life, Philip went with no apparent reservation, for it says that he arose and he went. Throughout history, we read of individuals who responded to the call of God in their lives when it didn't make sense, when it didn't all add up. They did what in the eyes of the world many would have considered crazy or foolish, and they followed the call of God. I firmly believe that God is still calling us like this today. And that perhaps more so than ever before, the comfort and the confines of our own culture, what the world tells us we need, what the world defines as what makes sense, prevents us from responding to that call, from arising and going. There are times in your life where God will very likely say to you, get up and go perhaps even into the desert. And every part of you may think, this is crazy. I don't want to go to the desert. But everything in you at that moment needs to surrender and you need to go. I can tell you today that I speak from experience in this. And there's no need that I elaborate on my own story other than to say that I've been faced with such a call and said yes, when everything about it was foolish in the eyes of the world. And I'll tell you that God has been faithful. God has been faithful every step of the way. Does it mean that it hasn't been hard in some respects? Oh, absolutely. It's still the desert, okay? It's still a difficult place sometimes that God calls you to. There's still challenges in the transition, but it doesn't mean that God's not faithful. It doesn't mean that God doesn't walk with you through it. It doesn't mean that God doesn't equip you for what he's calling you to. There are some of you here today, I have no doubt, that are wrestling with the call of God in your lives. And you've heard him say, go. And trust me, that is key, that you know what he is calling you to. It may be just one step, it may not be the whole plan, but you know he's moving you to something, but you're not going. You're not going, you're resisting it. And I pray that today perhaps it can be used to tell you, to reinforce, to encourage you to get up and go. Get up and go and respond to that call. God will reward your obedience. And what he wants to do and how he will provide will both be incredible and will grow your faith. You must trust in that. But he requires that you go, that you take that step. And in verse 27, again, it says, So he arose and he went. And behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasury, and had come to Jerusalem to worship, was returning and sitting in his chariot. He was reading Isaiah the prophet. And then the Spirit said to Philip, Go near and overtake this chariot. Starts out here, it says, And behold! You see, essentially what it's saying here is, Do you see what happened? Behold can be translated, seems to me so appropriate. So he arose and went, and see? A man of Ethiopia. Here, he goes to the desert and he comes across something that was nothing other than a divine appointment. Behold, a man of Ethiopia, a man who was very prominent and powerful as he had charge of all the treasury of the queen. Okay, this is an individual from Ethiopia who's got some pull, he's got some authority. Now, Candace is a term for royalty, so this wasn't her name. This is the queen though, of Ethiopia. And this man, it says, was returning from Jerusalem, where he had gone to worship. This man had come to Jerusalem to worship. He was a true seeker. He was desiring something. Here, by the the very virtue that he's continuing to read the Word, he's looking, he's searching, he wants to know more. Traveling such a distance to know and to learn more of God, and as a eunuch, He could not become a full Jew. And like many today who are religious, who are sincere, who are trying to read their Bibles, trying to pursue, but yet they don't know. They don't know Jesus. They don't know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And so they're lost. And so was this man. And here he is on his way back to Ethiopia, which was at this time much larger in its territory than it is today. And I believe that he was left feeling empty. He was left feeling empty, trying to understand the word and fill the desire that was within him. Trying to know more of God, but unable. And the Spirit says to Philip, go near and overtake this chariot. And it wasn't until this point that Philip was told what to do next. You see, Philip was obedient and responding to that first step. God said, go, go into the desert. He said, okay, I go. He rose and he went. And no doubt along the way, he was praying, 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 Lord, what is it that you're going to have me to do there? Seeking the guiding of the Holy Spirit, okay, on on the lookout, trying to understand what it was that God was going to have him to do. And we should be the same way. We We should be looking. We should be seeking God as we take those steps to say, Lord, what's next? What's next? And here he gets direction to go and overtake the chariot. And so Philip ran to him, and he heard him reading the prophet Isaiah, and he said, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I, unless someone guides me? And he asked Philip to come up and sit with him. This is incredible, okay? These are those unbelievable God moments that just make you go, wow. And it must have been an intimidating thing for Philip to approach this chariot. This would have been a large covered chariot, with an entourage, there would have been other people that were there. This man, as he's sitting in there reading from Isaiah, you know, reading on a scroll, which by the way gives even more indication of the wealth that he possessed, that he had an actual scroll of Isaiah with him. It wasn't that he was, you know, texting and driving kind of thing here, right? I mean, he was sitting back, he was relaxing. Someone was driving this chariot. Hey, it was big, it was large. And this would have been really intimidating. And he would have only heard the man reading inside. He would likely not have even seen him. And he would have had to run and chase it down. Only to hear the man reading from the book of Isaiah and then getting his attention to ask him about it. If you consider the scenario here, it would likely have been intimidating to any one of us. It's often challenging enough just to stop an individual who's walking along on the sidewalk and hand him a track let alone chase down a motorcade and start pounding on the window, knowing that somebody's inside, right? I mean, think about that. We wouldn't want to do that. And this is the equivalent of what he's doing here. This is what Philip does. Why? Because he was obedient to the leading of the Spirit. Because that's what God told him to do. Have you ever experienced such a leading? You just felt the sense to go one way when you were supposed to go the other? And I'm not just talking about taking the scenic route, right? Like, oh, hey, let's take the long way home, even though sometimes God shows up on those trips, right? But I mean, you consider stopping by somebody's house, you think, hey, I haven't talked to this person in a while. Goodness, they've been on my mind all day today. I'm going to pick up the phone and I'm going to call them. As you spend time in prayer, and all of a sudden it's just like, why in the world do I continue to think about this particular thing? I've got to act on that. I've got to follow up on that. Those are Those ways in which we are led of the Spirit. Because when you do those things, then you get the report of, this was the perfect time. How did you know to call me? How did you know to reach out to me? Oh, because of a thing called the Holy Spirit, right? It's a wonderful, wonderful thing. We have to realize that God is still working in this way. And chances are that we are not all here led of the Spirit, and surrendered to it to the extent that we could be. I'm just going to venture that. That's no judgment on any one of you. But I'm going to venture a guess to say we're probably not all there yet. And I know this is true in my own life many times, many times. Imagine, imagine if every one of us was so surrendered, so empowered, so led of the Spirit, Think of the things that could be happening. And that is compared to a lot of good things, by the way. This isn't me saying today that, oh, we're just a dead body. No, not at all. Not at all. We see God doing amazing things. We have incredible testimony to tell of so many different things. But we could have more. We could have more. Do we want that? Do we desire that? Do we desire to be a body of believers that is so led of the Spirit that we could see God just doing incredible things in this community? And so Philip says to the man, do you understand what it is that you are reading? And he says, how can I, unless someone guides me, the man says. And he invites Philip up into the chariot to sit with him. Now that's an open door, is it not? It's an incredible open door. There are times in my life when I have been intimidated to do what God was calling me to do. There's been times where I've been very intimidated. And I've been praying, Lord, I know I need to do this. I know I need to do this. Just give me an open door. Specifically, praying about an individual, a person. I know I need to share the gospel with them. Help me with how to do it. A person, in one case, that I worked with them on a daily basis, it even then gets a little bit sometimes uncomfortable, right? Sharing the same office, working together all day long. And I don't want to, I don't want to totally just freak this person out and turn him away. Lord, give me the, you know, help me out here. And here we are one day, one on one meeting. And we're talking and we're chatting about different things. And, and then he says, Hey, I, I got something I want to ask you. I said, Yeah, go for it. He says, Brent, I want you to teach me about Jesus. Okay. Lord, thank you for that open door. I mean, could it be any more obvious at that point? But this is what Philip was experiencing. Here he runs up alongside this thing. The guy's reading Isaiah. He says, do you understand what you're reading? He says, no, hop on in, teach me. I don't know who you are, right? But he invites him in to teach him and to share with him his faith. I had one time where a guy literally described to me why he needed Jesus. How to go about receiving him? I mean, he just told me every I mean it was just like he laid out the gospel, but he wasn't saved. And he gets to the end of this thing, and I'm I'm sort of like looking around, wondering, you know, am I getting punked right now? Like what's what what is what is going on here? And I said, So do you do you want to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Well, yeah. I just need somebody to lead me in the prayer. You know, so we talked about We talked about that. And well, you don't actually need me to lead you to prayer, but I'd be happy to pray with you. And boom, the guy's saved. I mean, these are these are incredible opportunities. And we've just got to be listening. We've just got to be willing to go. What is God saying to you? Where is he calling you? Are you praying through and striving to just identify those opportunities when he wants to use you in that way? You see, God wants your obedience to the call. He wants your obedience to it. For you to just say, okay, Lord, I'll go where you want me to go. And quite frankly, he takes care of the rest. Like sending Peter and John to Samaria to lay hands on them. He just delights enough in you and me to allow us to be a part of it all. His word is able then to go forth and have profound impacts. As we continue in verse thirty-two here, we see what it is that this man is, is reading from Isaiah. It says the place in the scripture which you read was this He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation his justice was taken away, and who will declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. So the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask you, of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or of some other man? He's reading right there. He's reading that portion of scripture and he's asked, Who's this about? Essentially, he says to Philip, Teach me about Jesus. And then Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. I'll emphasize what I said last week. It didn't matter if he was there. Or if he was in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, wherever he was at, he could have started at that point and given him Jesus. Jesus is there throughout from the very beginning. It is God's plan. He's proclaiming it to us from the very beginning of the book that it's about Jesus, and it's about his blood. And so he opens his mouth, and beginning of the scripture, he preached Jesus to him. Now as they went down the road, they came to some water, And the eunuch said, see, here's water, what hinders me from being baptized. This is the most eager believer, right? This is just fantastic. This is what everybody dreams about. They get excited about for somebody who's just going to be radical. And you know those people, by the way, you know those people who aren't yet saved and you see them and you're like, holy smokes, they're going to make a great Christian because they are just so, they're just into everything, right? They just, whatever it is, they devour it. And you think, oh, if that could just be the word of God and Jesus Christ, man. And then you see these people get saved and it's like, hallelujah, praise God. I mean, they're just on fire for the Lord. This is awesome. And so he answers in verse 37, then Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. So he commanded the chariot to stand still and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized. This Ethiopian man was so moved that he immediately wanted to be baptized. Why? Because he wanted to publicly proclaim his faith in Jesus Christ. He wanted to seal the deal. He wanted the whole process. Right? I want to make this thing as official as I can make it. And We have a baptism coming up. Right? We believe in immersion baptism. Here at Calvary Chapel. We, we we can't do it here. We don't have a baptismal, okay? And we don't sprinkle. We dip you under. We hold you down if we have to. And we pray for those fish, right? We believe in immersion baptism. But we don't believe that it is something that is required so that you can be saved. It is not that final process that, boy, if you don't do that, you're in big trouble. Rather, we believe that it's a critical part of the overall experience and that you saying, hey, I want to be baptized, that you going through that process is you declaring publicly that Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior, that you're making that commitment, that you're making that statement. And so I encourage if you're here today and you know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior and you've not been baptized, please sign up for that. Make that official. You know, if you were baptized at a younger age, maybe you were at camp or something and you got saved, but since then you've kind of wandered away a little bit and you just know, hey, I've got to get my life right with the Lord. Well, then get it right and be baptized again. It's okay. We can baptize you again if you want to make that proclamation again, but it's always an awesome time of coming together and celebrating what God has done in people's lives. And yes, As a part of the Calvary Distinctives series through August, we ask that those who want to be baptized, that they participate in that. But that's not required, okay? Because that day, the day of the baptism, I'm just going to give you a heads up, so no spoiler alert. But I'll ask if there's anybody that day who wants to be baptized. If you feel so led, and we will, it doesn't mean that you, if you don't go through these three classes, you can't be baptized. But we think it's a good thing for you to go and to have the foundations and really understand what is it that we believe. Well, here this Ethiopian man, as you see, Philip didn't say, hey, Let's let's give it a few weeks and let's go through all these doctrines, right? We don't have to do that every time. We just think it's beneficial. And he said, no, if you believe in Jesus Christ with all your heart, then let's do this. And he did. And when they came up out of the water, verse 39, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away so that the eunuch saw him no more. Philip was caught away. We only see this happening a few times in Scripture. This may freak some of you out. It happens, Okay. He was caught in the Spirit, and he was taken to Azotus. Boom, just there. God was doing miraculous things at this point in time so that the word could go forth. This word here, caught, is, this is the same word that we use, that we see in Thessalonians, as it relates to being caught up to meet him, meet Jesus Christ in heaven. This is the same word as the rapture, and so he was translated in the Spirit the same way that the church will be when Jesus calls us. So he's caught away, and here's this exciting thing: is that no doubt this Ethiopian man was like, "Where'd he go?" But his faith was not rooted in Philip. He wasn't sad at this point. He wasn't wondering, "Well, what's going to happen now? What do I do now?" You see, we didn't see discipleship happen right here, although we're confident it did in terms of how we see the church grow within Ethiopia. So he went on his way rejoicing. This was just a joyful man that was so excited about what had just happened. A man who had been seeking searching, wanting to know more, and hear the truth that Jesus Christ was proclaimed to him. And Philip was found at Azotus, and passing through, he preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. We believe that Philip was responsible for planting several churches. And as Philip was caught away, the Ethiopian man went on his way rejoicing. And where do you suppose he went? He went back home. He went back home. And the Ethiopians today, they claim a lineage back to Solomon. The queen of Sheba who visited King Solomon. She's held in tradition to have actually borne his son. We don't know that for sure. They claim that. What we do know is that she brought back the Jewish faith. She brought back elements of that, that this is why the Ethiopian man at this point was likely who he was and seeking what he was seeking and going to Jerusalem to worship. His witness tells us that. Furthermore, even Coptic Christians in Egypt today credit this man for bringing them Christianity. It at that time Ethiopia's territory actually extended all the way up to Egypt and Sudan's in the way now? And so the Christian Church remains in Ethiopia to this day. You see, this man, this experience, this one individual, took the word back, and the church grew. The point is this, Christian. First and foremost here, Philip understood biblically who his neighbor was. It was not the person that he necessarily liked or was familiar or comfortable with. It was who God called him to serve and to love. See, sometimes we have to make that choice. It's not simply about feeling. Secondly, we are all called We're all called. It's whether we will respond or be obedient to the call. That's the big part of this. You can't sit there today and tell me you're not called. God wants to use you. I am confident of that. God wants to use you. He delights in using you. He delights in working through you. He doesn't have to. He chooses to. We are all called. We need to respond to that. And thirdly, when we are obedient, God's word goes forth and does great things. Amen? I wasn't sure if I'd have time to share this story, and I'm going to. Many of you may have heard this before, maybe countless times. Anybody ever heard of Edward Kimball? Usually that happens. Never heard of him. Kimball was a Sunday school teacher who not only prayed for the hyper boys in his class, but also sought to win each one to the Lord personally. He decided he would be intentional with every single last one of them. We have hyper boys here, by the way. Hyper boys in Sunday school right now. Okay. He probably thought that he would give up at times. Thought, I can't take these kids anymore. If you've ever taught Sunday school, you know. You know. It can be like herding cats. One young man in particular didn't seem to understand what the gospel was about, so Kimball went to the shoe store where he was stocking shelves and confronted him in the stockroom with the importance of a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That young man was Dwight L. Moody. The L. Moody. In the stockroom on that Saturday, he believed the gospel and received Jesus Christ as his Savior. In his lifetime, Moody touched two continents for God, with thousands professing Christ through his ministry. The story does not end there. Actually, that is where it begins. Under Moody, another man's heart was touched for God. Wilbur Chapman was his name. Chapman became the evangelist who preached to thousands. One day, a professional baseball player had a day off and attended one of Chapman's meetings, and thus Billy Sunday became a Christian. Sunday quit baseball and became part of Chapman's team. Then Chapman accepted the pastorate of a large church, and Billy Sunday began his own evangelistic crusades. Another young man was converted whose name was Mordecai Ham. He was a scholarly, dignified gentleman who wasn't above renting a hearse and parading it through the streets advertising his meetings. When Ham came to Charlotte, North Carolina, a sandy-haired, lanky young man, then in high school, vowed that he wouldn't go hear him preach. But as he was known at this time, Billy Frank, as he was called by his family, did eventually go. Ham announced that he knew for a fact that a house of ill repute was located across the street from the local high school and that male students were skipping lunch to visit the house across the street. When students decided to go to interrupt the meetings of Mordecai Ham, Billy Frank decided to go see what would happen. That night, Billy Frank went and was intrigued by what he heard. Returning another night, he responded to the invitation and was converted. Billy Frank eventually became known as Billy Graham, the evangelist who preached to more people than any other person who's ever lived. At this point, estimated, I believe, above 2.2 billion people who have heard the gospel through Billy Graham's ministry. And you can continue to follow this, can you not? I don't have the stories in front of me of those who received Jesus Christ as a result of Billy Graham's ministry. But we can see you going all the way back to D.L. Moody. And we, we celebrate D.L. Moody, and we sometimes don't celebrate that Sunday school teacher who said, I'm going to get the gospel into the hearts of these children. And we see what happened. Here, Philip shared the gospel with this Ethiopian man and went back. And as I mentioned before, next June, our church has the opportunity to take a trip to Ethiopia where we can see firsthand what God has been doing through centuries in that country. And they still need support, and they still need help. That's why we have a heart to go back there. But don't think for a second that when God calls, even to the simplest little task, when you hear the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit's nudging you just a little bit to go and, and to share with this person, Don't think for a second that God can't do an amazing and powerful work through that interaction. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we give you thanks for your word here today. Father, you are so good to us. The creator of the universe, who desires to meet us right where we are. To save us? To show us unmerited favor? To give us what we don't deserve? To withhold from us the punishment that should be upon us? To instead place that upon your one and only begotten Son, Jesus Christ? That through His body which was broken, His blood which was shed, that we could be healed? That we could know eternal life. And not just that. You don't stop there. You don't just give us eternal life. You don't just forgive us of our sins. You don't just give us the opportunity to be forgiven and redeemed. But you go on to say, I want to use you, I want to grow you, I want to use you to impact my kingdom. Father, if we're not in awe by that here this morning, then, quite frankly, our hearts aren't right. And so I pray for anyone here this morning who doesn't know you, who does not know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, or who maybe has let so much of the, just the cares of this world or the, the, the hurts of this life, Lord, to callous them towards the things of you, that your spirit would move. And I would specifically ask that if there's anyone here this morning that does not know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, that today would be that day where you would surrender your life and you would simply pray, Heavenly Father, I have sinned against you and I ask forgiveness for all of my sins. And I believe that Jesus died on the cross for me and rose again. And Father, I give you my life to do with it as you wish. I want Jesus Christ to come into my life and into my heart, and I ask that in Jesus' name. And if you're here today and and you just need to repent, you need to get your heart right with the Lord because you have become calloused, or maybe the Lord has been calling you to something and you've been resisting that. Saying, no, this is too crazy, too foolish, that you would surrender that to Him today. That you would say, and it's okay for you to say, Lord, I'm uncomfortable. I don't want to do this. I don't know how to do this. It doesn't make sense, or I don't know how I'm going to make it make it work. But just give that to Him. Take that first step. Be willing today to say, God, I'm going to take the first step towards what you're calling me to, no matter how big or how small. Just be obedient. Take that first step of obedience and allow Him to work, to grow your faith, and to take you down that path. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Here at CCNE, there are so many events happening throughout the week, so make sure you're subscribed to the weekly eBulletin so you can be fully informed of all that we're doing. For more info, or if there are any prayer requests you'd like to share with us, be sure to visit us at ccnortheast.org.